Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm, but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what did the explorer say when he spotted Antarctica? I see land. Did you hear about the failed mission to Antarctica? Their journey went south. Outdoor environmental educator Amy Osborne joins us on the show today. Starting her career as a rowing coach, Amy discovered her passion for teaching, and particularly teaching outdoors, a little bit later in life. This led her to the shores of the Chesapeake Bay, Wyoming, and California. It also gave her the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity with Polar Trek to conduct research at McMurdo Research Station in Antarctica, something we chat about quite a bit today. Amy shares what life on the ice is like, how this opportunity came about, and the importance of connecting with your place. Please enjoy. Amy, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. Hi, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes. So first question, I <laughs> I thought this terminology was really fun and I wanted to start with it out the gate. Could you explain what a boomerang flight is and your experience with it? Sure. Yes. A boomerang flight is when you're flying on an airplane. I'm assuming, at least in my experience, that's what it had to do with. And you're headed towards your destination when all of a sudden you're no longer going to go there and they have to turn around and go back to where you started. So I don't know how many other people have experienced a boomerang flight, but uh, mine happened while I was flying to Antarctica from New Zealand. So we were headed to Antarctica, and I think the flight takes five or six hours. I'm trying to remember. About five. And we were over Antarctica. We're seeing ice through the windows, taking pictures, Everything's getting exciting when they announce that we have to turn around and go back to New Zealand. <laughs> and and that meant we were we had a, another five hours on the plane. We already spent about five hours on the plane to turn around and go back. And that's because the windshield had cracked. So, but that's the story that we were given. And so we couldn't, they couldn't fix it in Antarctica. They knew they had to fix it. In New Zealand. So we turned around, we went back to New Zealand and wound up spending about a week in Christchurch waiting for our the windshield to be fixed on the airplane. So just like a boomerang you throw, something goes out and comes back to you. Yeah. I mean, I thought you were going to tell me because it was like super windy and the conditions weren't right. No, the windshield cracked and they couldn't. I mean, obviously there's limited supplies in Antarctica and they couldn't fix it there. So they just took you all back. 
crazy apples. (laughs) (laughs) So how is it that you came to be on this flight anyway? You were part, you're part of the Polar Trek expedition, which is such a cool initiative. So what, what is Trek stand for? Teachers, research, exploring and collaborating, which is like a really cool concept. It's something we talk a lot about on the show is like getting the science out into the world, right? Like sometimes researchers can get in their ivory towers and they have all their data and all their information and they exchange it with each other, but actually getting it into the world and making their research impactful, there's a gap. Um, So I love this idea of bringing educators like you out into the field and like really bridging that gap, which is so stinking cool. But how did you even find out about this program? So I was, I'd been an outdoor educator for, I think at that time, about nine-ish years. And I was in a management role at that time, which meant I spent a lot less time outside and a lot more time inside in meetings. And I thought, well, I I kind of want to do something different. So one day I just wrote all dreams I could think of down on a piece of paper. And um, they included going to Antarctica sometimes. I, I like to travel and it was the only continent I hadn't been to. And I'm like, that would be amazing. It was so expensive to go there. I mean, I, I was like, I can't afford to go there, but I'll just write it. And I wrote down participating more in scientific research because I'd done it very minimally And I was interested in that. And I have a pretty strong interest in marine science and, yeah, wanted to know more about it, wanted to do something with it and do something with the ocean. Well, I'm, as a teacher, I am a member of the National Science Teachers Association. And I received one of their newsletter emails, which I rarely have time. I don't always look at them. But this one I happened to look at and it it said Polar Trek do you want to go to the polar regions as a teacher or as an educator? And I was like, Oh, what is this? Wait, wait a second. (laughs) Polar regions. That must mean Antarctica is involved. So I applied for the program. It sort of had several of my dreams rolled into one. And I thought, how is this possible to have marine science mixed with Antarctica mixed with scientific research mixed with, I should say education and science communication. So they're all there together. And I was accepted, which I was so excited. When the person called and told me I was one of the people accepted, and she said, well, what do you think? And I said, yes, yes. Oh, wait, maybe I should take some time to think about this. No, yes. We'll figure it out. Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) figure it out. Yes. (laughs) Super, super cool. Gosh, I can't like, that had to be such an amazing feeling for you, but like, Yes, we're going to check all these boxes on my dream list (laughs) in one fell swoop. It was incredible. (laughs) Incredible, for sure. I read some of your journals, like, leading up to the trip and during the trip. And they're really fun reads, by the way. And you had to do some training, right? You could, it's not like you could just hop on a plane, you know, you got your phone call, okay, you're accepted. And like, the next Monday, you're on a plane, you know, boomerang flighting to... Antarctica, right? So what what did that look like preparing to go be a researcher in Antarctica? There are several things. So I I went to Alaska to meet with the team, the other educators who are going on various trips, some to Antarctica, some to the Arctic, and to meet with the people 
kind of in charge at Polar Check, who are these three incredible human beings, Judy, Janet, and Sarah. And they train you on all kinds of things. And I think the one that a lot of us have probably had the most questions about or how to use the, the, the technology that was involved because you journal every day and we're posting journals every day and we take a lot of pictures and, and also then the piece of promoting yourself and what you're doing, which is not something that I was fully comfortable with. So I, I got an Instagram account for the first time, I actually met with a much younger friend of mine and said, what do I, what do I do? So some of it is that like preparing for the trip includes learning the technology, learning about how to promote yourself, and then learning the science, a bit of the science behind what you're doing and connecting with the researchers who you're going with, which I should say happens in the interview process. And I was so fortunate. I mean, there's a lot of fantastic researchers involved in this program. And I was so excited to get paired with Dr. Amy Moran, who is this fantastic professor from the University of Hawaii. So talking with the research team and finding out what they expect, and then also the extreme weather, right, that you're going to be in and figuring out what what do you need. So fortunately, this program has many different people who connect you to the many different things you need to know. Like I was just rereading my notes again and something I'm really interested in around science communication. And so a woman came in to talk to us about that and she was sort of our science communication person. And then, uh, but Elaine Hood was our, she was our Antarctic contact. And the meeting with her was really about what to wear. How do you poop and pee when you're there how do you how like where am I living what what am I what's going to happen what does life look like on the ice and yeah that was the for me that was the really exciting part was like okay what I get this big red parka and is it gonna really keep me warm and we wear special shoes and (laughs) does it keep you warm I was warm I it was great I, I felt good. So you do all that. And then when you get to Antarctica, you have to do another almost week of training once you're actually there. Oh, okay. So you're safe, basically, <laughs> to be safe. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. So you had your training in Alaska that kind of like prepped you for what to expect. And that's what paired you with Dr. Amy Moran, right? So how, did you pick? Were you like, I want to study these things? Or were they like, these are your skills and strengths. And so you'll go with her. So when you apply, you say, here here are the things I'm interested in. And I was interested in marine science. I'm also interested in, I feel like I'm a generalist. I'm interested in a lot of things. So I, I checked almost all the boxes. But you can rank them. I can't remember if I ranked them or I might have written about how marine science was sort of up there for me. And you also say where you want to go. And then the researchers, they also are applying to this program too. And then when you interview, you interview also with the researchers. So they, the researchers look through the people and they say, okay, this, this might be a person I would like to work with. And so we were choosing each other kind of. Okay. It's a, it's a mutual thing. <laughs> it's a mutual thing. The two Amy's together. It's great. Amazing. So I watched some of your videos and I, something that really struck me 
for some reason, I did not picture like a small village in Antarctica. It's actually McMurdo Research Station in my brain was just like a one building and like people just kind of lived in that. And there was different parts, obviously, for different, you know, a lab maybe. But it was just like one spot in Antarctica. It wasn't a village. That's what it looked like in some of your videos. And you have vehicles, special vehicles to get you around. So that really struck me. So what was life like on the ice? Life on the ice is like living at McMurdo. It's like living in a small village. Now, McMurdo is the largest of the research stations in Antarctica. And at its peak has about 1,200, I think around 1,200 people in it. So other places are just a building. <laughs> but where the United States McMurdo Station is is a, a community. There are yoga classes. There was a climbing wall there. There were place your food is provided which is really nice and I think the most exciting thing is there are these researchers and some of the top researchers in their field and they're milling about in you every Sunday there's a talk that someone gives on one of the researchers and it's sort of a talk for for everybody in the community and so you meet in where we eat and you listen to them talk and you ask a lot of questions and and then on Wednesdays, there's a deeper dive into the science that happens in the library. So I think life is sort of like being in maybe when I was in college to some extent, because you're learning and you're doing and you're working all the time. So, well, well you do sleep. But the researchers, especially every day you are doing, whether it's in the lab or out in the field, you're doing something with the research. And then there are all these other people supporting the research. So there are the people who cook. There's a waste treatment plant. There is a desalination plant. So I had the opportunity while I was down there, fortunately, to visit a lot of different places and to see meet a lot of people. There are the people who prepare everybody to go out. There are people who go out on the ice and like camp there and stay there for long periods of time too. And there are people who get them prepared. There's a person whose job is to go out and check out the ice and make sure it's safe for us to go on to the sea ice. So you know, wake up in the morning, have some breakfast, get ready to go pack everything into this track vehicle, drive out onto the ice. And sometimes you have to stop and check the cracks and measure them and make sure you should actually drive across them. And then spend my day looked like spending time in a dive hut. And I was a dive tender. So if one of the divers came up and had a problem or when they were coming out, I would take their oxygen tanks from them and grab anything else they had collected. And then they, this person, Graham and I, Graham was one of the PhD students and we would cook, heat up food for people while they were diving and warm drinks so that when they got out, they could get warm before they would go back in again. <laughs> The diving aspect of this like boggles my mind a little bit. I'm like, I mean, I've dove in a dry suit and it was not in Antarctica and I was still very cold. And so the fact that people are like doing this is absolutely incredible and absolutely boggles my mind. <laughs> there are amazing human beings who are doing this and they are excited to be down there. And when they get back up and they share all their stories, all I kept thinking is how do how do I get to do 
how do I get to do that? They're seeing all kinds of amazing life under, under the ice and, you know, in the ocean, under the sites where there's incredible community down there of living things. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because I think if people are more familiar with the ocean or an ocean science, they'll understand that Antarctica is like a really wonderful place for lots of different creatures and actually provides a lot of nutrients. But like, I think for most of the world, Antarctica is just a big blob of ice, right? Like what could possibly live in a place so cold? And the answer is a lot and they live really well. So what were some of the things that the divers saw? And um, we'll kind of go into your research a little bit, too. Well, it's a pretty diverse, as you said, a really diverse seafloor there. Antarctica is the only continent that has a current that goes all the way around the continent, which is really cool. So it keeps it fairly isolated. And so there's there's sea stars and sea urchins and sea spiders and fish and all kinds of life down there in temperatures that are below freezing, which I think is so fascinating, right, that these creatures are all living down there. And so when we were down there, we were studying sea spiders. And these are some of the gentlest, kindest creatures. I feel like they're very slow, which I appreciate. From my experience, which I only interacted with the animals once they were above the ice and we had a a tank we kept them in and, and things like that. But they're pretty slow moving, pretty slow moving animals. And then also the nudibranchs or the sea slug, that's kind of what we were focused on while we were there. And that's what the divers were doing. So they would explore, they would go down there with flashlights because it is dark. You know, this is an ocean covered by ice and there was a hole that was drilled in, in the ice and they would go down there and with their flashlights. And so while I was there, they were mostly focused on collecting sea spiders and sea slugs, also known as nudibranchs, and also their eggs and bringing them back up to the surface. And we, we had another researcher with us, Ann Todgem from UC Davis, and she was studying fish. So, so we would travel as a team sometimes, both of groups. And so they would all, there would also be people collecting fish as well and then bring them back to the lab. And both of our groups were focused a lot on temperature change and how it might affect these animals that live in a pretty constant 28-degree Fahrenheit land. Just so mind-boggling. So before we kind of get into the, the science behind it, the dive hut was something that was really interesting for me. So it's not like diving in Antarctica. It's not like you're dropping a boat into the water from a harbor. It's not like you're walking into a beach. There's literally a hut that's what, is it a little bit separate from the village. You kind of have to drive. Do you have to get in the, the track vehicle and drive to it? Yep. So you drive out onto the ocean, basically onto the frozen sea. And the fun part about my research is we went through sea ice training. So we were allowed to go out there. You have to go through sea ice training to be able to go onto the sea ice safely. <laughs> and that was really fun. That was, that was coldest, one of the coldest days. But then there are these wooden structures that they're amazing carpenters down there too. That's another great job that I think is, is down in Antarctica. And they, they build some structures and then, or they get, they also drag them out onto the sea ice. So a, a hole is drilled in the ice and then this hut is put over it 
And that's just to keep everybody kind of warm while people are diving. And it has a little stove in it that runs on propane, but it is separate. And they're all different sites along the sea ice. And each day we would go to a different one. We went to a couple of repeats, but sometimes you drive in those track vehicles for like an hour and a half or an hour, just kind of bumping along the sea ice. <laughs> That's so crazy to think about. It really is. So, okay. So there's more than one dive hut. They're, they're just kind of like randomly spread out. That makes sense. So you can get a better sampling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, so we have the sampling from different, different spots. And I think most of the spots we went to were fairly close to the shore, but they were in different places along Ross Island. That's so cool. It's so crazy to think about like little huts just over a big hole in the ice that you're going to go down. Yeah, they're going to go down. And then while they're under there, the vehicles are turned off and we would, Graham, who we were working together, he said, you should go outside and just walk away a few steps and just listen because it's the quietest quiet I've ever heard. It's very quiet. Like I've never heard so much quiet in my life. I don't think. I want to go there. (laughs) You should go there. I love it. It's such a magical place. I, I, I like usually don't handle cold, but the quiet is very appealing. I'm like to not hear anything, like no cars, no planes, nobody talking, no buzzing of electricity, just quiet. Could you hear the ice at all? Sometimes you would hear the ice, the ice just sort of, oh, I guess cracking maybe a little bit. This one place in particular, we were closer to shore and there was a bunch of jumbled up ice and you could kind of hear it. But usually it's just complete. There's no air. Yeah, there are no airplanes overhead. There are no birds. That was the wild. There are no birds chirping anywhere. Or Yeah, that is really cool. Oh, I should mention one more animal because I forgot about this one and I don't know how. Once the hole is there, you know, seals... I was going to bring this up. Is this snotty McSnot or no? He was, it was a steely McSeal face and then he got rechristened. <laughs> McSnotty because he always was blowing his nose out and the seal would pop up out of the dive hole and just blow its nose constantly. And sometimes I got some seal snot on me from it. Oh my gosh. That's, I mean, that's hilarious though. Did the diver scare him off? Like, did he just hang out with you for a while? <laughs> what is, what did, what's he doing? He hung out with us while the divers were gone. And it is hilarious. It's so funny. His head would pop up. And he's a marine mammal, so you're not technically, we're not supposed to get close to it. But there it is, like, right up in this dive hole and just blowing its nose constantly. <laughs> and we're just talking to it. And then the divers, I mean, this... They have to get him out of the way, right? Otherwise, they can't come up through the hole. So they blow bubbles up out of there. And that convinces... That's a signal. <laughs> yeah, snotty McSnotty to, to move. McSealy. I can't <laughs> But it was the same one. There was a few times we would just see the same, the same one. He's like, ah, oh, the humans are here. Let's go play. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I gotta have a. I gotta have some words with them. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's so fun. I want to see to pop up and come hang out with me. <laughs> it was pretty fun. It was nice. <laughs> so something else that while we're on the topic of your dive huts, it's not just for diving. You are also dragging some plankton nets through it, which is really cool. Was that part of your project that you kind of analyzed some of the nutrients that were in the water there? Or is it you just kind of like supplementing some extra information for other projects? Um, so Denise Hardaway, who is the other educator, she and I were down in Antarctica at the same time. And she's a teacher in a, on the central coast of California. And she was with Antogem's group studying fish. And she and I both love plankton. So we thought while we're hanging out, waiting for the divers, and we did other things. We didn't just hang out. We, As I said, we cooked lunch and we actually took the salinity and temperature of the water and and the oxygen levels. But we also were like, well, let's see what we can find down there. We both love plankton. We'd been seeing some of the zooplankton come up to the surface anyway. We saw I was trying to remember the name of it. It's one of my favorite little plankton, but the baby snails with their little wings that wave, you know, before they. Oh, pteropods? Yes. Yeah. Like, I know this. I know this word. So we decided we would see what else we could find down there. And we're like, we'll conduct our own science investigation while we're here. So we did do plankton tow. And we saw mostly copepods, which is what we kind of expected to see. I'm trying to remember if there was something really fascinating in our plankton toes. But we, we only did it a couple of times just to see what we could find. So it was not related to anyone else's research, but our own curiosity to see what we could find out. And why not? Why not see what's in the water right where you are? And you just have plankton nets available. Why not see what's there? That's true science, right? Just what's there? I'm curious. Let's find out. Yeah. It is a pteropod. I looked it up. <laughs> I'm like, it's got to be, right? Winged foot. It's got to be. <laughs> That's what I was thinking earlier today, too. Because I've, I've been thinking about it for two days. I'm like, oh, I should actually look it up. But yes, pteropods. So cute. I love them. And they popped up. I think I have a video of one somewhere that just was floating along in the dive hole. And it inspired us to think, okay, let's see what else is there. Yeah. So wait, you could actually see it in the dive hole? How big are they? That one was pretty, I mean, it was probably this big. What's that, like maybe a half inch? Just moving around. And then, and then with our cool cameras we got, we could zoom in. I made a little video of it. That's so neat. Really cool. All right. So you're leaving the dive hut. You've got your samples, right? So you've got your nudibranchs and you've got your sea spiders and you're heading to the lab. What's what's next? What's next is to have lunch. No, well, first, <laughs> just kidding. I mean, we have lunch while we were there, but no, we would get back and the divers are just you know, warming up, basically sleeping. I mean, they, they just worked really hard. And so usually not all the time, but sometimes Graham and I would drive back, which was one of my favorite things as well was driving that piston bully across the sea ice. It was pretty fun. So we would get back and unload everything we had collected and then put them at their, at, at McMurdo station, there's a science building And in the science building is kind of a wet lab 
where different projects are going on. And so we had the sea spider, Nudibranch, and we and some other invertebrates there, ectotherms, I guess. So we were the person I was with is studying ectotherms, which are we we would call them cold blooded. And so that's kind of what our focus was. But the reason we focused mostly on nudibranchs and sea spiders is because there are a lot of them and to have sort of two different things. And so we would take their, mostly focused on their eggs and how they would develop. So we would take them and put them in this wet lab. And then later, Aaron Toe, who is another, is another PhD student researcher down there with the project and Graham Lobert would, they would kind of then decide along with Dr. Moran, okay, what will we do with the ones we have now? And they had these ongoing projects of taking the eggs and putting them into incubators at different temperatures and seeing how, what happens over time. And so there were days we didn't go out in the field every day. There were days we were in the lab. And each day, though, whether we were in the field or not in the field, we would check these trays of which they're just plastic with little holes and little dips in them. And that's where the eggs were. And we would look through the microscope at the eggs every day and write down recording what has changed, if anything, in the each each eggs. You're looking at solely the sea spider and the nudibranch eggs. Yep. How did you know that these were sea spider nudibranch eggs? Did you actually get them from the creatures or did they find them floating in the water column? They're, they're mostly taken from the creatures. So I don't think I have a picture of a nudibranch one, but this picture, which I know if you're just listening, you can't really see, but there are a bunch of little eggs underneath this sea spider. It carries its eggs underneath its body. Like a crab. Yes. The crab does. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the nudibranchs, which I don't have a picture of, they lay a spiral case and in it are all of its eggs. And it's usually fairly close. Yeah, like a whelk or a conch for anybody that's familiar with that looks like. It's a similar casing, right? And then one of my jobs, and another thing, I, I pretty much enjoyed every every job I had down there, uh, was in the, each day I would go in and I would look at the bigger tanks of animals and check them to see if any any of them had laid eggs or what was going on. Yeah. And if they did, I was like, alert, there are eggs around. Cool. That's really neat. All right. So I want, I want to back up one second. We mentioned ectotherm and cold-blooded. So really quickly for listeners, that means that they don't generate their own body heat. So their body, their body temperatures are regulated by their surroundings, right? So we are endotherms. We generate our own heat. So we feed our own furnaces and ectotherms like the sea spiders and sea slugs don't do this. So just wanted to break that little jargonish term down. So when you're looking at these eggs, what are you guys actually looking at? Like, I understand. What are you looking for? So... We are mostly looking for how they're developing and what stage they might be in. And so the trays that I was telling you about um, with the eggs in them are put in different, they look like refrigerators. They call them incubators, but they're set at different temperatures. So when we take them out, we'll say, oh, these are the eggs that have been at one degree Celsius or whatever it is. And then we look at those and we try to see if 
how they have grown over time. And are they growing faster or are they growing more slowly? What happens when the temperature is different? So we're, we will take some from one temperature and then we compare them to the eggs that are in, under different temperatures. So if you look, it's actually have pictures too of the sea spider eggs. So sea spiders start off as this little egg and then they start to grow up. And as they grow up, they start to form a little proboscis and their two little eyes. And then when they get bigger, they start to form their legs. And so when we're looking through the microscope, we're looking to see what stage these might be in. And then we record that so we can compare it to the eggs that are growing under different temperatures. So that's one of the things that we were doing with them. Okay. So, and there's a, there's two things I want to unpack. One, there's a control, right? So you kept, you probably kept a fair amount at the temperature that you collected them at, right? To just be like, this is what they would be growing at normally. Yeah. And then the second thing is for listeners, this isn't like a chicken egg or a duck egg that people might be familiar with. They're not opaque. They're completely see-through. So, I mean, most, I think all, I'm not going to say all because I don't know, but most eggs in the ocean are see-through. Like I've had a lot of experience looking at fish eggs, and you can see the baby fish inside. And so this is the same thing with the pictures that Amy just showed. There are little tiny sea spiders in there, and you can actually watch them develop within the shell of the egg because it's completely clear. (laughs) Which is so fascinating. And one of the really fascinating things that I learned is that nudibranchs, so the sea slugs, they do have a shell during their development or during their growth while they're in their egg, but then it goes away before they're born, which I think is really cool. That's super fascinating. I did not know that. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Oh, I should say the other thing we were looking at is to see if they were still viable or still live, still alive. And we we're kind of guessing, right? So we didn't, it's not like we got rid of them if we thought that they weren't, but we would look at them and say, okay, are these do we think these things are still alive or not alive? And it was one thing I, another thing I really loved about working uh, with this group is just, you start to come up with names for things because there isn't one. So, so they'd say, okay, these look like mashed potatoes. Let's just say this is the mashed potato. You know, they, okay, this one looks like this. (laughs) So when you you know when we're writing down that what we're seeing, Graham and Arian helped me make this guide to what so I could help them. You know they've been doing this for a while, and I was new to it. So I said, okay, what is this one in? What what stage is this one in? And then you know sometimes Aaron would look in and he'd say, oh, that's a mashed potato. Just just right. <laughs> makes it easy. <laughs> Whatever works. Yeah, makes it easy. As long as we have the same standard, right? And we're all saying this is this thing. It doesn't matter what we call it. As long as we're all calling it the same thing, that's what matters the most. (laughs) Right. As long as you're on the same page. Very cool. (laughs) That's super fun. So I want to take it back. I'm really curious. How did you get into outdoor environmental education? Going to Antarctica seems like the pinnacle opportunity for somebody in that career field, right? But how do you even get started in a career in outdoor environmental education? So I entered outdoor environmental education when I was 38 years old. 
I think, or 37. I'm trying to remember. 37. Before that, I had been a rowing coach for seven years when I first got out of college. I studied, I'd say I studied political science. So that's, that wasn't wasn't really. And you, and you rode in school, correct? I rode. Yes. I rode in high school. I went to Marietta city public schools and there was a rowing team and I loved the water. And so the water, I was excited to be on the water and that's what I really wanted to do in college. So I only looked at places that had rowing because that's what I wanted to do. And I wound up at Washington college on the Eastern shore of Maryland and rode there, which was really fun. And my dad always says, that's really what I majored in, right? It was rowing. I just, so I thought about all the time. That's what I like to do. I was technically a political science major and, and I like to travel. And I, I focused mostly on international, international studies classes when I was a political science major. And then I graduated. I didn't really, as I was starting, I, I wanted to go to law school and I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. But then somewhere along the line, I was like, that's, that is not what I want to do. I don't really want to be inside was a lot of it. I'm like, I don't want to spend all my time inside. So I wound up being a rowing coach, which also gave me the ability to take classes where in the places where I coach, if I was coaching at a university. So at Washington College, I ended up getting a master's in English literature because then I thought I might want to be an English professor. My dad is a college professor. I was listening to Constance's podcast. I was like, oh, dads are college professors. Some similarities. Yeah, like a lot of, of things going on here. I also wanted to be a college professor for a while. And then I wound up in California coaching there at USC and took some education classes. And so I got interested in education and then eventually became a classroom teacher. And I'd say peppered along the way. So similar to Constance as well, my my science classes I actually did not take my science my required science for um, my undergraduate degree until my senior year. And it was biology. And the first semester was like baby bio, right? Biology for the non-science majors. And I loved it. And we did some water quality testing. I'm like, this is really cool. Oh, you get to be outside doing these things. And then the second semester was biology, ecology, and the Chesapeake Bay. And I had this really cool professor, Dr. Munson. And we wound up out on the water, dredging for oysters, eating. I, I like raw, to eat raw oysters. So, you know, we're eating oysters right off the boat. And I kept thinking, wow, if I'd taken this my freshman year, my whole trajectory might have changed, but I didn't. I took it then. And and so that was exciting, but I didn't see myself doing anything with science because I just thought I was kind of too late to the game. And that was when I was a senior in college. But then when I decided to become a classroom teacher, there's a lot of really cool professional development for teachers. And if you have a school district like I did in Virginia that allows you to go do some of these professional development opportunities. It's really exciting. And I wound up doing one with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, where we went to Smith Island and we were out in canoes and again, doing things in the water. And I'm like, the water, I love it. Did you get a Smith Island cake? I have to interrupt. Did you get a Smith Island cake? I did get a Smith Island cake. Oh, that's so great. So for listeners, if you're ever in Maryland, 
You can probably order, I know you can order them in some restaurants, especially on the Eastern Shore, but the Smith Island is a tiny little island just off the Eastern Shore of Maryland, and they have a famous cake, and it's like, I don't know, seven to ten layers, very thin layers, and in between each layer is icing, and it's like heaven on a fork, so that's a Smith Island cake. (laughs) I had forgotten about that cake until right now, and it was so good. I love cake. It was great. so good. <laughs> okay, so you're on you're in canoes in the Chesapeake Bay, not eating cake, but <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I kind of fell into being I was an elementary school teacher, and it just so happened that in several of the places I worked, there weren't a lot of other teachers in my same grade who were that into science. But I, I thought, oh, I mean, I like the natural. It was really being in nature that got me into science. When I was a kid, all I did was play outside and I mostly just want to be outside. And so I thought, well, I, I could, yeah, I like teaching science. It's really fun. And so the principles of the two schools where I worked kind of pushed me to be the science person. So I, so I became like the science lead at the school where I was teaching. And I was like, well, I don't have a science degree, but, but fifth grade science, I can handle, you know, I can handle that. That's pretty great. But then I was teaching everything else too. And, you know, I really started to think about what we were doing in the world. And I thought, wow, I'm making these kids third graders study economics and things like that. And how are we how does this any of this matter if our planet is kind of falling apart as a whole and and meaning like the natural world and you know we're becoming disconnected and and or that's what I was kind of seeing and I would try to take my students outside and do things but I I now I realized then you know I was doing my best we'd go out and read stories and things like that and I had a really great principal who was also she we had a pond at the school where I taught we had this really cool meadow and but an inconvenient truth came out and my friend who was also a third grade teacher were like, what, what are we doing? Like how we need to do something more, right? Something greater, but what is it? I don't really know. And so some of it was finding other people who are passionate about the same things we were passionate about. And then it just so happened. I ran into a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a year, right? When I was getting ready to move away, I decided to leave Virginia and just go travel for a little bit because I couldn't figure out what else to do. And I had saved up money to buy a house. And I'm like, I don't want to buy a house. Like that seems, why do I want to do that? I don't, I don't know where I want to live. <laughs> and so he, this friend I ran into, I was telling him like, I'm really passionate about science and nature and, and our planet. And we, I feel like we need to do something. I feel like I'm not doing enough as a teacher. And I should say teachers, you know, teachers are incredible humans and they do, they do so are doing so much. But for me in that moment, I felt like I just, what else can I do? And he told me about Teton Science Schools. And he said, you might, maybe you would like to do a teacher professional development workshop. I think they have them in the summertime. So I was looking into that as I was, my intention was to travel for a year and come back and keep teaching fourth grade, which is what I had started teaching fourth grade, mostly science by the last year I taught. And so I looked into it and I thought, well, wait, they have a graduate program. There's something called place-based education. What is this thing? 
And so I ended up applying to their graduate program. And instead of going back to be a teacher, I went back to be a student and wound up studying place-based education in Wyoming near Jackson Hole. And that's what, that's what really got me in, into the field of outdoor education, which I did not know existed. I, I mean, I guess I, if I had really thought about it, I should have known because I, I took my students to an outdoor ed place and there were people there teaching them. And I thought, wow, these people have a really cool job, but it never occurred to me that there was a greater world of even the work I did with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. I just, for some reason, didn't really think about it. So that's what led me to really think about, I would say, place-based education more than in along with that comes environmental education, but how do we use our place to learn? It was the concept. Yeah. What is place-based education, really? Place-based education is using the place around you as a learning tool and that way becoming more connected to the place around you. So a great example would be, well, you can think about it in the realm of science. If we want to learn about geology or we want to learn about habitats, we can just go to them and be in them, especially if they're right out your door. But I also like to think of it in the way of like, okay, my students needed to write biographies. Well, we could have just gone to some neighbors and interviewed them. It doesn't have to be a biography about a famous person. They just need to know how to write biographies. Or when we were learning economics, one of the students' parents worked at Whole Foods. I'm like, we could have just gone with to a store and maybe asked them questions. So whatever your place is, and there was a push for a little while to change the name environmental education to place-based education because it seems more accessible. We all have a place that in which we live, our community in which we live, and learning things from that place is kind of incredible. But at Teton Science Schools, we were in a national park, so we were, we were learning mostly about the natural world and environmental science through lens of being in that national park and that being your place. But your place could be, maybe you learn about what's around you. This is, I used to teach some teacher professional development workshops in urban areas. And I was like, you don't need to go to a national park to learn about nature. You just look out the window or walk outside the door. (laughs) There, it's there. Sometimes I think that's more impactful just because it's, because it is more accessible, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, you know, if you can make people appreciate what's literally right at their doorstep and not necessarily in the Grand National Park, I mean, the National Parks, absolutely, they should be appreciated. But if you can, if people can appreciate what's right outside their door, then I think that just lends itself to an evolution and a growth to appreciate more, you know. I think it helps as we become a more group of people who kind of change what, where we call home if we can connect to our home place in a way where we're just looking right around us and seeing what's there and and it helps it helps ground me right when i when i wind up in a new space and a new community just to walk around and see what's there and talk to people but also i like working with kids because kids look closely and they're so curious right so i was walking around with a 3 year old and she's like <gasps> It was early spring and she's like, look, the baby grass, the baby grass. We walked like three steps and just looked at baby grass for probably 10 minutes. 
<laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> That's awesome. So before I get into my rapid fire questions, I don't think I asked, what were, do you know the results of your work in Antarctica? Like what, what happens with the temperature? Has that been analyzed yet? So the whole analysis hasn't been done yet. And the research team does have a website that I think is this. I have it written down somewhere. But if you, if you Google search polar gigantism or metabolism, of ectotherms in Antarctica, <laughs> you're bound to find them. I'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> but what I, what we do know is it, it appears that they're growing more quickly under warmer temperatures. So the next, the bigger question is, does it matter? Does it matter that they're going from an egg to an adult more quickly or does it not matter to their development? So that's another piece of it is that I wasn't quite as involved with, but was studying what what is happening to their actual development more than just their growth. Like, are they having all their parts? Is everything there as they grow more quickly? So I think that's one of the amazing things about being with research scientists. And really, no people can make predictions, but you have no idea. You have no idea what's really going to happen until you test it. And they're open-minded to whatever it is that will happen. So Dr. Moran is like, maybe the increase in water temperature won't matter to these sea spiders, but maybe it will. We know it's going to matter to a lot of animals in the ocean as the temperature increases in the ocean, but we just have to do more studies to feel like, see, how does it matter? Are some animals, we're going to have more of them and we're going to have less of some. I mean, we're pretty sure we'll have more of some things and less of a lot. Less biodiversity is most likely. But yeah, with our particular research project, as far as I know, they were supposed to go back down in 2020, but that didn't happen. So they, they did go back in 2021. Okay. Very cool. And you were there... And the equivalent of the Antarctic spring, right? So you were like October, November. October, November, 2019. So it wasn't dark outside ever. So people were like, what were the stars like? And I'm like, oh, there weren't any. So I don't know. Are people there in the wintertime? They are. There are a lot fewer people. So there are only about 30 something people there in the winter, just keeping things going. Right. Because you can't just desert the village. <laughs> Yeah, the village. Now's the time if, if you're of working age and you're excited to go to Antarctica, they're always like, who wants to come work here? No, they don't say that. You have to have some skills, but. <laughs> but there's skills that don't require research degrees to go down there. You can go offer other services. Yeah, most of the people aren't researchers. Most of the people are there supporting the research going on. I think heavy machine operators seem to always be looking for them and carpenters are a big one. And dish, there's dishwashers, you know, there's cooks, there's pastry chefs. There are all kinds of people down there. That's so cool to think about. I mean, it makes total sense, right? Like there's all this support, you need it, but like, it's not really something that comes to mind. Like I could go travel and like live in Antarctica and do, you know, a skill that seems very commonplace in the day to day. All right. At the end of each episode, I have a series of questions that I like to ask. You ready? I'm ready. 
I hope. All right. What's your favorite sea creature? My favorite sea creature definitely changes over time. I'm really into the octopus is really cool. I think right now in this moment, I'm like octopus. Yes. But I love sea otters and orcas. I was watching about the orcas in Patagonia last night. So yeah, that's a hard question. And the pteropod. I just like their little wings. And nudibranchs. I love nudibranchs. Okay, a nudibranchs. If I have to choose one. That takes the cake? <laughs> I guess. Or all the zooplankton. No, I don't. Yeah. It's a hard question. I get it. <laughs> what does the ocean mean to you? The ocean means oh, like a bowl full of questions and mystery as well as adventure and also connection. Like I feel like I, I sometimes I just like to float. <laughs> so connecting to the ocean and just like this peaceful can be peaceful and it can be raging. And I like them both. It's great. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three what would you use the money for so i'm assuming these aren't i don't know if these are projects that are already going on but if i could make up my own project something that would i've been dreaming of something that connects people to water and to each other and so i had this sort of dream of of a watershed like going down the watershed and having people like young people, people of all ages who live in maybe the mountains, being able to connect with people in the ocean and traveling the watershed together and learning from each other. And then I, I really feel that our passion for things comes from our connection to them. So any way to connect more people to water and to nature, I'm into. That's a cool project. Yeah, my watership. I would love to do this watership project. It'd be really fun. <laughs> so, if you ever find that blank check, <laughs> I'm working on it. I am working on it. You know, let you know. Keep you posted. That's a great project, though. Because, yeah, you protect what you love, right? So, you get people connected and, yeah. And I think as we become more global, like connecting to each other and hearing each other's stories, that's how we, that's how we start to care for one another, too one another in this place that's true that's very true what's your favorite field story or stories to tell and this could just be like an amazing day on the field or this could be a day where things happened and it just makes a really great story now okay well my favorite sort of feel-good story is I and the thing that kept me coming back to teach outdoor education is the day when I had a group of students several of whom had not had not seen the ocean before. And I can't remember if these students were from Sacramento or or from San Francisco. We've had I've had several kids from San Francisco who haven't seen the ocean before. And so to get to show them the ocean is always exciting. And this kid, I think I usually get out the map and I'm like, okay, here's where we are. And he, he's looking at me, we're on the beach and he's kind of looking at me and he's looking at the water and he's looking at me and he said, wait, is that the Pacific Ocean? I was like, that's the Pacific Ocean. He's like, what? That is the Pacific Ocean? And he's jumping around and he's so excited, screaming. And he's like, I always wanted to see the Pacific Ocean. And this is it. And so that is, oh, 
I always remember that kid when I'm like, why am I doing the work I do? Oh yeah, this kid, this kid is so excited to see the ocean. That's <laughs> great. That is so cool. That's so heartwarming. Yeah, that's a little heart, the heartwarming one, I think. I work with kids, so they're really gross stories too. And I, I, I don't need to share all the gross stories, but <laughs> they're kids. So they're- I can only imagine. Can only imagine. That's awesome. The ones we sit around and tell to each other are the ones that are pretty gross. Oh. All right. At the end of each episode, I like to leave listeners with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? I say get outside and get curious and love where you are and find those little baby grasses growing or bigger things, but just staying connected with the place you are, asking questions about it, and then doing whatever you can do in the time that you have to take care of the spaces that we all have. I agree. I like that one a lot. Love where you are and connect with it. It's a great ask. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and your work, where's the best place to do so? That's a good question. I have an Instagram, Amy and Antarctica with underscores between each one, but I, I got to figure out the password for it. I'm one of those people who's like, where's my password? So I think more the Polar Trek website. My journal stories are on there and I think my contact information is on there as well. If, yeah, if it's not the Polar Trek, people are very helpful in putting connecting. Oh, okay, great. They're fantastic, <laughs> polar check people. But I do have a Facebook page, an Amy and in, in Antarctica Facebook page as well. Awesome. I'll put a link to all of that in the show notes then. Okay, thanks. That's great. <laughs> Are there any other thoughts that you'd like to add? No, just, well, thanks for doing this. This is great. I love hearing other people's stories too. So I'm excited to listen to more of the episodes. I listened to several of them, but. Oh, this is great. But no, have have fun being outside. Get out there and enjoy the world. <laughs> yes, it's great. Well, Amy, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter, When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.